This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wangal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Inch thick, knee deep, o'er head and ears of forked on. Go play, boy, play. My mother plays, and I play too, but so disgraced a part whose issue will hiss me to my grave. Contempt and clamour will be my knell. Go play, boy, play. There have been, oh, I am much deceived, cuckolds ere now, and many a man there is, even at this present. Now, while I speak this, holds his wife by the arm, that little thinks she's been sluiced in his absence, and his pond fished by his next neighbour, by Sir Smile, his neighbour. There's comfort in it. Whilst other men have gates, and those gates opened as mine against their will, should all despair that have revolted wives, the tenth of mankind would hang themselves. Physic for it, there's none. It is a bawdy planet that will strike where tis predominant and tis powerful. Think it. From east, west, north and south be it concluded, no barricade for a belly. Know it. It will let in and out the enemy with bag and baggage. Many thousand ones have the disease and feel it not. How now, boy? Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Leontes from Act 1, Scene 2 of The Winter's Tale, read by our guest this week. He is an actor, author and creative producer and explorer of original practices in Shakespeare rehearsal and production. He's the co-author of Shakespeare's Words, the Shakespeare Miscellany and an illustrated dictionary of Shakespeare. He also wrote the Springboard Shakespeare series for Arden, and his first solo book, Shakespeare on Toast, was shortlisted for the Educational Writer of the Year Award. From 2014 to 16, he was invited, along with his father, David Crystal, to explore original pronunciation in the newly finished Sam Wanamaker Playhouse at Shakespeare's Globe. He's a special advisor to the Shakespeare North Playhouse, a patron of Shakespeare Week, and the founder of the International Shakespeare Ensemble, which makes full-scale productions in five days or less. He's travelled the world teaching and performing Shakespeare and has delivered speeches for the British Council, TEDx and universities worldwide. It is my great pleasure to welcome Ben Crystal. Ben, welcome to Speak the Speech. Thanks so much, James. It's such a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a thrill and it's such a thrill to have you here in Sydney visiting us, Ben. And thank you for sitting down with me to chat about Shakespeare. I know it's your favourite thing to do. 100%. Um, so, <laughs> so let's dive in. Leontes, what's going on with Leontes here? Five seconds ago, he was saying, please, Pol- Polixenes, won't you stay? Hermione, come on, convince him to stay. And then all of a sudden he's having a jealous fit. What's going on? And that speech is so fractured as well mm. when you look at it on the page. I, Shakespeare, I think, is famous for looking at jealousy in Othello. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a few years later, you, you watch jealousy descend on this man, this king. Yes. Um, as you say, over... I think it's maybe a dozen lines or so, mm-hmm. half a page. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a trick 
to perform, to take, to carry the audience through on that, that mm. narrative journey of, I love you. I'm slightly bemused. I'm feeling awkward. I'm completely consumed by jealousy. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. It's an incredible and, moment. And it becomes a kind of madness for him. I mean, he completely loses his mind in the following scenes. He has her arrested, uh, dragged in front of a court when she's just given birth. So how can we f have any sympathy for this character whatsoever? And it is horrible what he says. He insinuates that there's no faith in any relationship mm. ever. And yet, like all the grittier, more difficult bits of Shakespeare to swallow, as ever, he's holding that mirror up and, uh, and, and we may not like looking in that mirror, yeah. but but we should look because mm. I mean, I felt that way in, in my younger times from a relationship. Mm. Um, lots of people have experienced it. I think it's, it would be easy to, to slide him in this moment uh, and the moments in the rest of the play under an incredibly toxic form yeah. of masculinity. Um, but, it, but I think whilst Shakespeare creates really wonderful, fully fleshed out beings, they are also uh, vessels. And mm -hmm. just because these words and these thoughts and these feelings are in the vessel of a, like a male identifying creature, he's not saying for a moment that, that, that anyone of any gender out there hasn't got a sense of what it might feel like to suddenly be consumed mm -hmm. with paranoia and suspicion. And, and, and that, that worst part of jealousy too, where you're, you really hope you're wrong. Yes, yes. Uh, but there, I mean, there is something incredibly misogynistic about the way that she <laughs> approaches it, though, of course. And, and Hermione dies in the courtroom as a result of, of, uh, of the attacks under, uh, from Leontes. But, you know, he, it's like when Hamlet says, um, uh, you know, uh, wise men know what monsters you make of them. Um, he calls himself a forked one and says there's a tenth of the population probably. Uh, 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 you know, th this misogynistic idea that, well, all women are cheating on their husbands. They're, mm. all, they're all turning them into quote-unquote monsters. You know, the idea that the cuckold had horns growing out of his head and was an object of derision and scorn. Um, so what is the journey Leontes then needs to go on to finally at the end find some sort of resolution because remember this is a late Shakespeare play it's all about forgiveness it's all about um, letting go which all of the plays are at the end of Shakespeare's life so what is that journey that he goes on well I think whatever the journey for Leontes it's not as great a journey as the one arguably that Hermione has to go on right and neither are perhaps as great as the one the audience has to go on mm -hmm. when you think about uh, the end of uh, two gentlemen of Verona yeah. where um, you know uh, Julia and Sylvia's silences are deafening just mm. like at the end of yeah. measure for measure yeah. and the leap that the audience has to make in accepting the forgiveness that valentine gives proteus mm -hmm. after pretty much near raping sylvia in front of him yes do do we forgive leontes at the end of winter's tale mm. hermione arguably does maybe she doesn't she doesn't address him though does she she, she doesn't she, she talks to perdita but I, I don't think she talks to leontes not a word yeah, uh, the, yeah. The, the silences of the female characters in shakespeare are absolutely fascinating mm. and i think mm. i think shakespeare is is deafening with them um and yeah. uh but i i wonder 
whether the experience of the audience as they leave the theater seeing one of these plays, mm. what would be more satisfying? You know, do they want them to be forgiven? Do mm. they not, not want to be forgiven? Um, or do they want to leave arguing about whether or not you should be forgiven? And I'm sure it's the third one. Yes. You know, I'm sure yeah. we all actually want to leave going, but I want to. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then you, you, know, you, you want to still be talking about the play the next day, That's not right. having forgotten you've been until you see the program on your breakfast table. That's right. <laughs> exactly. That's right. You were alluding just before to the language in this speech. And what I love about The Winter's Tale is you can see the progression of a writer from the beginning when mm. you see Shakespeare's early work. You know, look, you mentioned Two Gentlemen of Verona as well. There couldn't be two more um, different uh, players in terms of Shakespeare's language. You see his evolution, how he changes the way that he attacks verse. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, and, uh, you know, the best, uh, one of the best examples of that I saw was um, Stephen Fry was giving a talk about poetry. He did a book on poetry a few years ago. Oh, yeah. And he put up on the screen, uh, and so listeners can usually do this themselves. You grab a hold of uh, Sonnet 18. Yes. And grab a hold of an earlier speech from Leontes uh, that begins too hot, too hot, mm -hmm. and put them next to each other. And you see so clearly the transition and transformation, the transcendence of Shakespeare's verse over mm -hmm. the 20 years where it mm -hmm. comes relatively regularly in um, in Sonnet 18, you know, shall, shall I compare thee to a summer's day, thou art mm -hmm. more lovely and more temperate, da -da -ba -da -ba -da. Yeah. and then by the time you get to Winter's Tale, it's like, yeah, it's like jazz. Absolutely. It's wild. It's, uh, you know, and, and it always fascinates me. I wonder where he would have gone next, you know, um, what, 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 what do you reckon? What what would have been next for Shakespeare? I mean, Winter's Tale is kind of a culmination of this jazz kind of jagged anti-verse. Where where was he headed? Gosh, that's a great question. <laughs> I mean, you know, some of the other late plays like Timon, some of the bits of Pericles mm. where people aren't sure whether it's prose or verse or right. maybe it's poetic prose or prosaic verse. Mm. Uh, it feels like he's continually poking a light okay. into different corners and, yep. and exploring different ways the verse could be. I mean, it's a, a friend of mine knows all the sonnets off by heart, Will Sutton. Mm. He's got a great party trick. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> it's a long party trick. <laughs> he, well, he can, you can say 46, 132, right. okay, 28. Gotcha. And, bit, bup, bup. Yeah. Um, and he <laughs> told me once that there's only one sonnet that is 14 lines of so you got 154 riffs on a theme mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then you know you could argue i think quite definitively that in every play has a different shape to it every yes. play uses verse or rhyme or the mixture of verse and prose in different ways mm. it, it seems the dude was pretty endless with his innovation yeah. um so I don't, I have no idea, but I know for sure that it wouldn't look like anything else that we've got. Yes, yeah, I, I think that's that's probably right. Although the good thing about the end of Shakespeare's career is that it kind of feels like he he, he didn't get cut off in his prime. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like he, he, It feels like he got to a point where he said, okay, you know, I've, I've done what I'm doing now and I'm going to retire back to Stratford. I've got lots of money and, and I might do the occasional co-writing gig, but, you know, I've said what I needed to say. Do you think so? I completely agree. Although I feel that very much with Henry VIII. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that would have been the equivalent of the crown or the West Wing for, for Elizabethan right. audience or Jacobean audiences to see what it's like at court or what yes. have you. But yeah. if it was the political satire that... Um, for them, and it, it it really doesn't 
translate very well to modern audiences. Mm. For me personally, I don't think it's a very good play. It's not the best, no. Um, Two Noble Kinsmen is quality. There's some really great stuff going on in that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cymbeline, I like very much, but it does feel like he, he was getting tired or, right. or bored or, 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 or just had, like you say, had just done it yeah, and okay. was happy to pass on to the next generation. Yeah, yeah. If he was as, even as slightly self-aware as we'd like him to be, um, and bearing in mind that he was doubtless as cantankerous and human and tired and fatigued <laughs> and jealous and greedy and everything else as, as we all can be. Mm. Um, I'd like to think that there was a part of him that had enough self-awareness to know, like, when you're done, you're done. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. or you know, that there, this, this isn't going to last forever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, he didn't, he didn't have that many years after he's finished writing no. until he died, right? So right. maybe there was a degree of, you know. Yeah. I'm, I am done in, in every different way. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, also, you know, he was such a good businessman. You know, mm. we hear throughout history artists struggling to be discovered in their life, living in absolute poverty and then only um, becoming famous after they die. But he, but he was always so good at the showbiz side of things as well as the art, right? I think so. I mean, again, in Winter's Tale, you haven't probably got a bigger coup de theatre than Exit Pursued by a Bear. Great. <laughs> apart, apart from anything, you imagine the production meetings. So yeah. <laughs> this is my idea for the play. And everyone's going, oh, yeah, yeah. cool. And I think it would be really great if we could have some, like, storm or some sea and all the production crew going, yeah, okay, yeah. we could do that. So then, like, I was thinking we might pop over and borrow one of those bears from next door. And yeah. Then, oh, no, well, jeez. Lay off the opium, mate. Come on. Um, so do you reckon they had a real bear in there? Are you serious? Maybe. If you if if you've got just down the road There's a whole bears. bunch of bears there on chains, bears. yeah, you know, yeah. use what you've got. Yeah, but yeah. then right at the beginning of the canon, you've got at the end of Henry the Sixth, Part One, where Suffolk has just met Margaret mm. or captured her, and he, as quickly as Leontes is consumed by jealousy, Suffolk is consumed by love. And isn't that interesting? I suppose we think it's okay to fall in love at first sight, but mm. we can't quite get our heads around jealousy in mm. first breath. Mm. Um, mm. But uh, so Suffolk is talking to the audience and he's sort of like, oh my goodness, you know, I'm in love with this woman. And Margaret notices that he's talking to apparently nobody. Yes, yes. And turns out to the audience and says, who's he talking to? Yeah. <laughs> and you've got this brilliant, like, meta, meta theatrical mm. device mm. that mm. the only other part of the canon that I can think of where a theatrical device is sort of commented on is, funnily enough, in Henry VIII, where a couple of guys report to the king, I think, uh, what Wolsey looked like when he was in soliloquy. Yeah. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. But, I mean, you've got this guy that is, mm. in terms of Shakespeare, not just continually reinventing himself like Bowie every album with mm. every play and, <laughs> and twisting and manipulating the verse into wonderful new places, but he also seems to be continually pushing at the barriers of what theatre can do or yeah. what his theatre can do yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. There's also um, Macbeth, look how our partner's wrapped. You know, oh, yeah, he's, absolutely. He's, yeah. he's in soliloquy and, and Banquo and the guys at the back. <laughs> That's it. I knew there was another one. Cool. That's the one. 
Ben, you and uh, you have worked a lot with your father, David Crystal, the great linguist and um, um, expert on English language. And I'd love to talk to you a bit later about what it's like to work with your dad and write, <laughs> sure. and write with your dad. Um, <laughs> but but you two worked on uh, something called original pronunciation, mm-hmm. OP. And I'd like to ask you about that because uh, it became a big part of what you did at the Globe Theatre in 2014 to 2016. Mm-hmm. And you did quite a lot of research around that. First of all, how do you find out what pronunciation sounded like in Shakespeare's day? How can you find that out? I just asked my dad. Yeah. <laughs> um, he would say that uh, finding out what an accent sounds like from long ago is, is really quite straightforward. And oh. he's, got a, he's got a party trick uh, where he can travel from Old English to Beowulf poet, what, and all that kind of thing, yeah. um, through to Chaucer, Father Chaucer, the non-espresso's tale. And, uh, and then into original pronunciation. Okay. And um, the, the method is the same. You, you look at um, the text, hopefully there's rhyme in it, mm. and you can divine from the rhyme a good right. chunk. So two thirds of Shakespeare's sonnets don't rhyme in most modern English accents. Yes. And yeah. so, you know, the, there's the element of deduction, either Shakespeare was a bad poet or the, <laughs> or the accent has changed. Mm. Um, so if this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, no, no man ever loved. Mm, had mm. to have been uh, proved and loved or mm. loved and proved. Right. And So which is it? Well, we know absolutely categorically because we've done the research that the only person to have ever elongated the vowel of love, the love, 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 was Elvis Presley. So, uh, <laughs> wow, okay. No, no, that's a terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible joke. It was absolutely love and prove. Um, and uh-huh. uh, you can prove, prove it by um, looking at uh, all the other examples like glove and and move and mm-hmm. that kind of thing, move. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, and this is the other chunk of data, uh, there were dictionaries at the time. Ben Johnson, Shakespeare's contemporary playwright, mm. wrote a pronouncing dictionary and he goes through the letters of the alphabet mm. and says this is what these words sound like and rhyme like. So he goes, love, move, glove, prove. Oh, okay. Well, that's convenient. Right? Yeah. Really, really. Thank you, Ben. Okay. <laughs> um, and that's also how we know that um, the, the stronger uh, R sound, mm. uh, the, the sort of more rhotic sound that's common in American, yes. was, uh, was more heavily pronounced in Shakespeare's time. So George instead of George. Yes. yes. Um, because when you get to the letter R in, ben, in Johnson's pronouncing dictionary, he says, we pronounce this letter. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Ben. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Easy. Now, Easy. how do you pronounce it? Is it a is it a r? Mm. Is it a, a uvular trill, a r? Mm. Mm. Uh, or an alveolar trill, a r? Mm-hmm. Whichever one it probably was, I will step away from linguistic exploration at this point and say, uh, which is going to be uh, least intrusive, which is going to be not such a problem to to, to continually be. Uh, pronouncing. I mean, the Welsh use that alveolar trill mm, mm. an awful lot, but that uvular one is really quite sort of difficult. Yeah. And you, with, with any of these original practice explorations, you don't want to be making... Mm. It's wiser perhaps not to make choices that are going to uh, push the audience away. Yes. So I always invited folk to lean towards that that er sound. Yeah, right. Uh, Johnson calls it the doggy sound. So it is like a, a dog yes, growling. Yes. Rather than a, but that could be a, I suppose. There's a bit of that in Romeo and Juliet, isn't it? Doesn't the nurse refer to R? That's the, yeah, that, that's the dog. There's, there's, there's a line in there about um, about the letter R. Romeo yeah. starts with R. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah. And then the third source of data is uh, spellings. Mm. So in Romeo and Juliet, when um, Mercutio has his Queen Mab speech, mm, mm. 
he talks about Queen Mab flying around on the uh, dragonfly or something. Yeah. And she's riding it and she uh, has a, a whip with a lash mm -hmm. and the lash uh, is made of film. Mm -hmm. And the film is spelled P-H-I-L-O-M-E, which mm. is six letters. It's very likely a two syllable word, right. film. Film. Could yeah. be filme, mm -hmm. but film is a m modern mm -hmm. Irish pronunciation. Do you want to go and see the film tonight? Yes. I want right. to go and see the new Marvel film. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah. an Elizabethan yeah. pronunciation that stayed with us. Okay. So okay. Uh, all of those things get you to about 90%, 80 to 90% right. Mm -hmm. That last 10 to 20% drives my dad crazy because mm. he's an academic and he's a perfectionist in that respect. Mm. You want it to be, but it's not bad for 400 years. I like that gap because it means, look, I grew up as so many people did hearing Shakespeare and received pronunciation. Mm. When I went to drama school, I was told not to speak Shakespeare in my own voice. Yes, yes, of course. And learn RP. And when we all learn, receive pronunciation, and flatten out our natural mm. regional sounds from wherever we are in the world. I mean, your your accent is you. Your accent is your mm. vocal fingerprint. Yeah. Your accent is your identity. Yeah. Your voice is your identity. And so removing parts of yourself in an arena of artistic work that is inviting us all to bring as much of ourselves to it as possible. Mm. Mm. Whereas with original pronunciation, we can all sound about 80 to 90% the same, but yep. then the last 10 to 15 to 20%, we can sound like us. We like can our keep own, yes. our individuality. Yeah. And I think that's a lovely balance that also is a bit of a stepping stone bridge, hopefully to a future point that it feels like we're coming to now, where uh, the right sound for Shakespeare, the right accent for Shakespeare is your accent because you want to speak it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot more dialect variety, not dialect, accent variety, sorry, in, in Britain, isn't there, than here in Australia. But that's what I would have assumed, that there were many different kinds of accents on Shakespeare's stage. Um, from the north, for actors from the north, from the southeast and west, and, and from Wales and possibly Scotland, I'm not sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so, so how does that work with original pronunciation when everyone was bringing their own dialect and their own accents into the theatre? I, I must say, though, um, I, th I feel my father would probably push back a little bit there. I, I, I think there's a a British person would probably say the same thing about Britain. They say, oh, there's not many accents here. I think, Is that right? Yeah, and, and, and the more isolated a country, pockets of a country is, mm. generally, the stronger an accent will get. Right. And then when my dad grew up in Liverpool, the accents would change from street to street. Yeah, right. So yeah. they really can, because they're such a marker of identity, if, yeah. you, if you want to strengthen your identity as a community or as disparate parts of a community, mm -hmm. accents can bubble up fresh mm -hmm. quite quickly. And then there's the linguistic trait of accommodation, whereby if I like you and you like me, our accents will sort of even Merge. out a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like me and I don't like you, then our accents will get stronger. Yeah. So now imagine a situation where different parts of what is now the United Kingdom have a relatively isolated 400 years ago. Mm -hmm. So you've got relatively strong accents meeting each other. It probably would have been quite a, a rainbow firework of, of accents yes. to begin with. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it might have settled down over the I see, right. over the time mm -hmm. that they had together. Mm -hmm. It really depends how much time they went off back to their homes to, to top up their accent sound. Can you give us a couple of lines from Leonti's speech in OP just so we can hear what it sounds like? Oh yeah, with pleasure. Yeah, okay. 
There have been, or I am much deceived, cuckolds there now, and many a man there is, ain't at this present. No, while I spake this, holds his wife by the arm, the little thing she's been sluiced in his absence, and his pond fished by his next neighbour, by so smile his neighbour, nay, his comfort, and as other men have gates, and those gates opened as mine against their will. Should all despair that have revolted wives, the tenth of mankind would hang themselves. Physic for it, there's known. It is a bardy planet. Yeah, wow. <laughs> that it's there's such a musical there's there's such a a unique musicality to it that RP doesn't have. I mean, RP is fresh and bright, but it doesn't have that kind of that that music. Absolutely, and. Um, and funnily enough, with all those R's in it, it it's heading more towards American, mm -hmm. uh, uh, certainly Irish, but uh, American, West Country, um, British uh, There's accents There's lots as well. of different qualities. And it's funny, you know, wherever we do, wherever we've done this sound, there'll be someone in the audience, wherever we are in the world, and they'll say, they speak like that where I come from. Mm. And that's great, right? Because if this accent is the great, 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 great grandmother of the accents we're speaking today, mm. then, and those accents in Elizabethan London essentially left the UK and traveled around the world, then it, there is an, an element of it that will be familiar, truly, because you are speaking something that is related to original pronunciation. I, I mean, I like speaking it. I've had more experience speaking Shakespeare in RP or in OP than my natural speaking voice. Mm. Which, so doing the opening speech in my natural speaking voice, there's a bit of me that's like, I don't know what my natural speaking voice is anymore, because, <laughs> or at least with Shakespeare. And then I find, and this is partly because of the way that the vowels in the accent change, it, it tends to uh, engage uh, your, your, your center around your, your stomach mm. and your gut. In, in all genders, it tends to engage a deeper quality of the voice, mm -hmm. partly from the little we, we know about Delivery, you know, speak the speech as I said it to you trippingly, mm -hmm. and the uh, the elisions in the folio were pretty sure, and the two hours traffic. There's yes. a, there's a rapidity there, yeah. but then also all of those things combined, I find that there's a there's a muscularity in mm. the words, mm. and all of these things, they I find myself going to a different emotional place yes. when I read it, and I think, oh God, why couldn't I access that in my own voice? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And maybe that's because of my lack of practice in my own voice. Maybe that's because, as with all original practices, whether it's of movement or building or rehearsal or sound or music or whatever, mm. we're tuning into something. This sound would, or even it's a our approximation of the sound. There is a sound that Shakespeare heard when he was writing. Yes. And just like the togetherness, the ensemble nature of the way that his actors rehearsed or the quickness of the way they rehearsed was written into the DNA of these works, so mm. too was this sound. So maybe there's a degree to which speaking Shakespeare in OP allows you to access something or a, a particular quality that is harder to access in modern voices. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm James Evans. And my guest today is Ben Crystal. Ben, you wrote with your father a dictionary. <laughs> now, how on earth 
do you write a dictionary? One of the actors was asking me today, we did a, a, a fantastic session, an acting a class with you this morning, and one of the actors said, how do you, do, do you start with A? I mean, where do, yeah, you, right. where, where, where do you start? You actually? start with Aardvark and then you hold on tight till you get to Zunes. <laughs> That's right. I mean, compiling this thing must have taken years. How did you do it? It took three years. Three years, okay. And that being said, my father was writing other books whilst we were doing it. Mm-hmm. And I was fresh out of drama school and had a few gigs yep. that took me away. Um, but we spent some time, actually, uh, we used to go to Stratford-upon-Avon and watch the, the season of shows at the RSC. Mm. And we spent a lot of time in 1999, I think it must have been, mm-hmm. in between shows talking about what this dictionary might look like. Yes. The idea came, uh, I was on my way back to my alma mater in Lancaster University to help a friend on a production of Much Ado About Nothing, mm-hmm. Norton. I called my dad up on the train. I said, look, can you tell me what this word means? I, I don't know what it means. And he said, well, why haven't you got your glo- onions glossary yes. with you? That yeah. 1910, quite thin book that everyone was using at the time. And I said, well, I do have it with me, but the word that I want to look up isn't in it. It's not in it. Mm. And he, so he was at his computer. He looked it up on the Oxford English Dictionary. Thank you very much, Dad. Went away, worked on the show. On the Monday, I was traveling back down to London and I called him up. I said, you know what? Someone should write a new one. Someone should do a new dictionary. <laughs> he said, yeah, why don't we? Mm. I was like, mm. oh, wow, okay. Like, yeah. I mean, I think there was a part of Dad that might have hoped I was going to follow in his footsteps down linguistics. I and, see, yeah. And then very, very much lent into and embraced and supported me and then lived vicariously through me as an actor when I mm-hmm. went into the theatre profession. But to get to work together on this, to collaborate, to turn your father into your colleague and, and, then, and then a friend, yeah. it was a really magical process Mm -hmm. but the process itself was we both got editions we did the book with penguin uh we both got a complete set of penguins uh, individual editions and i had a pink highlighter and he Uh had a green one right (laughs) we split the canon in half and each of us went through the play and highlight the words that we thought would difficult would be difficult to understand Mm -hmm. and then swapped and then collated them and looked at our choices. And generally speaking, if not entirely, I over highlight and he under. Right. Because he was a 50 something year old academic with a Latin education. I was very much not, you know, I didn't study Latin in school. I I went to university, but um, I I was never a particularly big reader of the classics. Uh, I had a pretty fair understanding, but my, the point was that I would represent folk that got it okay uh-huh, but uh-huh. Uh, i might struggle a bit more mm-hmm. and and then i tried as i've tried to do in all my own work i try to to broaden it out as much as possible and really come to it and think all right let's pretend i know nothing yeah what, what would trip me up that's right so there were there were times where we'd argue about it he'd say like why have you included goth everyone knows what a goth is they're a mm-hmm. tribe from the second and third century and i'd be like that goths are folk that wear black makeup right you know so there was the generational thing <laughs> yeah, as well sure. yeah at, at, at the end of it i think the, the the trick was i would often highlight words i didn't understand but then his riposte was they are still being used today and we are not going to replace a modern dictionary. Now, I'm not sure if he was right on that, although if we right. had included all generally all the difficult words, the book already big would be probably twice okay. the size. Yeah. So yeah. the point was anything that is uh, no longer in use, uh-huh. anything that's changed its meaning, yes. or anything 
classical or illusory or allegorical or whatever, the, uh -huh. like a god or a mythological creature or something. Yeah. But if it's a modern word or if it's still in existence today, but you just don't happen to know what it is, mm. go to another dictionary. You know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then the definitions themselves, mm -hmm. did you go to other editions and look up footnotes? Did you lean on the onions or the, the Schmidt um, lexicon that's already out there? I mean, how, how did you find out these definitions? How, how did you discover them? Um, I mean, onions, y yes, absolutely, to both onions and Schmidt. Um, although I know that dad generally started again and went back to the Oxford English Dictionary, okay. which um, mm -hmm. for those listeners out there, it, the, the OED does its very best to find the earliest use of every word in the English language mm -hmm. and then uh, tracks the changing use and meaning of it over its time. Right. Which is one of the reasons why uh, we know how many words Shakespeare invented and why that number has changed in the last 20 years or so uh -huh. from 2000 down to about 1000, okay, yeah. which is still pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, most of us would like to invent one word that comes into the English <laughs> language because the OED researchers find earlier uses uh -huh. of a word that we thought was Shakespeare, okay. but actually He's, someone had written 20 years before or something. Mm. So he'd used the OED, but, and, and I think this was part of the joy of the collaboration or perhaps the success in part of, of the book mm. in that he would say, we need to, you know, this is what this word means. And I'd be like, well, it's all down to interpretation, isn't yeah. it? We can't start prescribing what a character thinks or feels. I mean, goodness knows, as part of the joy of Shakespeare is arguing about what Hamlet means or what Rosalind means or what Ophelia means or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So Dad came back with something called lexical triangulation. Mm -hmm. And lexical triangulation basically means we'll give you three definitions of right. every word. Mm -hmm. And the meaning is somewhere in the middle of that triangle. Yeah. So we'll give you the sense of what it is, but then you can either decide if one of those words is right or yes. if some sort of combination of all three is. Okay. So there's... There's room, as with Shakespeare, there's mm -hmm. room for you. So you're an author and an actor. Early in your career, you're in your 20s when you co-write this book mm -hmm. with your dad, very early in your career, and you're still trying to establish yourself as an actor. Mm. So what was the impact of that, being an author and an actor out there? What happened? Well, this came from such a, a passion. You know, I hated Shakespeare in school. I, uh, I, I got s noticed by a, a woman who was setting up a repertory company when I was, I was playing in Oliver, I played five character parts because I couldn't sing very well at the time. And, uh -huh. and uh, she said, come and audition for Shakespeare. I was like, no way, <laughs> like, oh, come on. And she cast me as Ariel in The Tempest and 10 weeks of rehearsing Monday and Thursdays and watching all life drain out of every single joke because you've heard it a dozen times. <laughs> yeah. And then the audience came and the circuit board of the play lights up. And of a Shakespeare play, it lit up in a way that just changed my life forever. Mm. And how old were you at this point? Oh, uh, seventeen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, whether it was a road to Damascus moment, if you want the biblical illusion, or just catching a wave for the first time, I felt consumed with a confidence or, or a sense of an ability that uh -huh. Shakespeare never bothered me again. It doesn't mean I don't find bits difficult. But I'm I, I, I'm filled with a conviction that the meaning or the solution is there if you yeah. tune to it in the right mm -hmm. way or in your way. And so this book was a huge source of passion. It was also a, an opportunity to get to know the whole canon yeah. in such an intimate way. And I was so proud of the collaboration and the joy of getting to work with my dad and the creation of it. And 
perhaps naively, I thought this is going to open so many doors. Right. And it slammed them all shut so hard. How is that? Why is that? Uh, I think there are directors out there that don't like the idea of having clever actors in the room. Yeah, right. <laughs> which is a shame. I'm a big believer of the wisdom of the crowd mm. and equal voice. That's why I, 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 find, I found, have founded uh, ensembles rather than you know, more traditional theater companies. Mm. And I thought that it would be a test. People would see it as the testament of passion that I'd created it with. Mm. And certainly it has been, the book has been, was embraced in theater and rehearsal rooms all over the world. Yes. Uh, but a lot of those rooms I didn't get access to. And that, that hurt for a while. That, that really, that was a surprise. You know, you said you make this thing and you're, you're proud of it and excited by it. And it doesn't quite have the effect that you'd hoped for. I'm not sure that I resented it, but I struggled with it for a mm. while because I came to this as an actor yeah. and everything I know about Shakespeare, everything I've done in my life, whether it is acting on a stage, um, teaching in schools, writing uh, books, uh, producing, it all coming from a place of making accessible from a, a, the heart of an actor, which yeah. of course, I mean, he was writing for, uh, for actors. For actors. Yeah, yeah. Tiffany Stern said in, his, in her book, uh, Shakespeare in Parts, um, Shakespeare's actors were... Shakespeare's understanders like has never been seen before or since, yes. you know, they, yep. they were the ones that had the craft and the skill set to unlock it. Mm. And yet I wouldn't be here today if yeah. I, if it hadn't have been that way. And as I've learned, as I can, am continually taught by Shakespeare so much about my life or the way we are, um, the path you're on is the path you're supposed to be on. Yes. And yes. had, mm -hmm that I hadn't written the book and I had somehow managed to, I don't know what, what play Hamlet, the RSC or something, mm. then I wouldn't have done so many incredible, yeah. wonderful, nourishing things. Yeah. I probably wouldn't have uh, written Shakespeare on toast. Yes. I wouldn't have set up the theater companies have set up mm. and I wouldn't have found myself in like an incredibly privileged position to be able to go around the world, work with, I can work with a theatre company and B theatre company. They may hate each other, but I have only loyalty and no allegiances. You know, yes, it's a really yeah. wonderful place to be able to mm -hmm. to move freely. And I've learnt so much. Was it the path I hoped for? No, but I'm really <laughs> grateful for it now. Well, I mean, obviously, the the book Shakespeare's Words became standard in rehearsal rooms all around the world. And whether or not you got to play Hamlet at the RSC or whatever, you started. I your got own to play it in Reno. <laughs> yeah. I got to play it in Reno, Nevada. It was amazing. Are you serious? Reno, I'm, Nevada. I'm genuinely serious wow. to an audience of people that mostly had never seen Shakespeare yeah, before. Well, so you know, don't drink wonderful. it. Got true. It was awesome. Oh, you're kidding? Yeah. They didn't know how it was going to end. Nope. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, it was brilliant. Oh, that's fantastic. That's much yeah. better than playing it at the RSC. I Come completely on. That's agree. That's awesome. It really was. But you've started your own ensembles. And mm -hmm. and what I'm fascinated by is this idea of a quick raise that, that you, yeah. um, that you um, have done, which is rehearsing and building a play within five days, sometimes three days, and yep. occasionally, I might add, one day. <laughs> yeah. Now, yes. now what, why make a play, I mean, apart from because we don't have enough money for rehearsals, <laughs> why make a play in five days or less? Well, and also, though, you hit the nail slightly on the head, 
in these um, cost of living times with the funding climate that there is or lack thereof mm. for young independent theater creators and practitioners of Shakespeare to know that there is a way to do this cheaply. You know, you get a crown, get a dagger, get a group of people, get a space. Yeah. And you don't have to have six to 10 weeks of, of rehearsal. You mm -hmm. can scrape together the funding to pay everyone a week's wage yep. and, and, and be done. And yep. then do three shows at the end of that week, which will maybe not pay for all of it, but, but pay for some of it. Mm -hmm. So the academics of today reckon that Shakespeare's actors had about 18 hours to raise a new show. Wow. So you're doing- That's apart from private time, learning your own lines. Um, oh yeah, your own absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. You've, you've got your daily schedule of something like rock up to the theater in the morning, rehearse for a, a little while, prep the dancers and the fights for the play that day. Yeah. Doing a different play every day of the week, six days a week. Mm. Perform the play of the day at two o'clock, finish it around four or five, There'll probably be some sort of production company work. Maybe um, a new play is going to be read to you by the playwright. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, maybe you're going to get uh, be passed a new play to copy out your lines from and make your own cue script. Some things haven't changed, so I imagine soon after that there's a trip to the tavern, sure, sure, or home mm -hmm. and learning lines yes. uh, for the next day, or refreshing lines for the play the next day. Come back to the theatre the next morning. You've got a bit more rehearsal time. Then you've got to prep the dancers and the fights for the play that day, yeah. and on and on it goes. So overall, and, and looking at um, Henslow's diary, because of course it wasn't always always a brand new play. There would also be plays that they had in them already right, from the previous bring out weeks. Again. Yeah, yeah. So maybe uh, next week we'll do a play that we did from week two, or, you know what I mean, mm. about 18 hours. And 18 hours is uh, three hours a morning for two weeks or it's three days. Three days. Of yep. full time. Uh-huh, okay. <laughs> so then you do it. So with your actors, you give them the cue scripts, they go away, they learn it, they come in. But also you've created that sense of ensemble, haven't mm -hmm. you, already? So there is a shorthand in terms of the way that you work physically. Yeah, I mean, well, so we've picked up this jewel and turned it to catch the light in different ways. So some colleagues who run the Seven Stages Shakespeare in uh, New Hampshire, they will, in a five-day process, build the ensemble, uh, play in the world of the play, do physical work, do beehive time where they go off and run little bits of dialogue, what have you, dances and fights, that kind of thing. And then they'll pass through the play or verb through the play in the evening, which is a sort of... Like a run? A sort of, I, you know, they don't use that word. Okay. But, but yeah, absolutely, some sort of runish sort of thing. When I was exploring um, these practices for the first time, I was uh, following in the footsteps of the original Shakespeare company, uh, Patrick Tucker, who's Tiffany Stern's uncle. Uh -huh. uh, he would verse nurse each actor in isolation. They would get three verse, each actor would get three verse nurse sessions. Uh -huh. And in the verse nursing, it would just be pointing out stuff. Right. Know, oh, look, a, a switch from thou to you. Oh, look, there's an emotional word here, yes. whatever. Um, and then the actors would all, uh, well, those called would meet for the dances and fights in the mm -hmm. morning of the play. And then um, the actors would usually meet each other for the first time on stage in front of the audience running the play for the wow. first time. So they would never run through the play entirely no. without an audience. Nor, yeah. ha nor, like it would be, I wouldn't necessarily know you're in it, Jimmy, until <laughs> you come on stage as King right. and I kneel before you or what have you. <laughs> And that lack of rehearsal, I mean, it was terribly exciting stuff. Um, and I remember they did, gosh, 
I can't remember which play it was. Maybe it was Cymbeline. Um, and I saw it at the Globe and I managed to catch, it was when Mark Ryans was running the, the place and mm -hmm. I caught him by the elbow and said, what do you think? And he said, yeah, it's good right up until it goes wrong. You know, <laughs> why do you kneel before me, says the king. And the actor who is standing, because they haven't rehearsed it, mm. slowly sinks to their knees. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then the audience start enjoying the bits that go wrong. Right. And that's not the point, right? Then it becomes pantomimic. Yeah. I thought this was fascinating and um, started to, th that's when I was really starting to think about ensemble because if they had a similar sort of process, then there's, there's something in the circuit board that we've missed, right? Either um, the actor didn't listen to the text closely enough, or maybe it's, as you say, it's the ensemble thing, right? You've got this group of craftsmen, because women weren't allowed to act on the stage at the time, who knew each other so well they've been playing together for years by the time you know mm -hmm. 16 20 years by the time he comes to Macbeth they've been playing in the same sort of space for quite a long time the globe are six years in by the time they play Macbeth and they would be able to listen to the text to the space to each other's natural way of playing yeah. so carefully I, I, I think even if you'd miss the fact for some bizarre reason well, first of all, if you really think about it, if you're in the presence of a king, you kneel, because how does a king become a king? Sure. You kneel to them. Yes. <laughs> um, so, but when we were practicing these things, I invited the actors to make their own cue scripts mm -hmm. because of the short nature of the rehearsal time. One a great way of um, accessing the long-term memory is by copying the words out in your own hand. Yes, you of know the, the actors probably did this in Shakespeare's time too, because one person's handwriting to another probably wouldn't have been very legible. Right. And so if you've got your speech on the left there and you've got a piece of paper on the right and you look at the words and you see it says to be comma or not to be comma, that is the capital Q question, colon. Mm. And then without looking back, I now write out to be comma or not to be comma, that is the capital Q question, colon then I'm not copying it out by going back and forth. I'm lifting it off the page on the left there. Huh. It's coming into my head and I'm regurgitating it out on the right without looking yeah. back. And um, it's, it's one of the ways that we can learn it so quickly. Mm. But then I would yeah, practice the dances and the fights. We would play very intensely together. We would do company versus sessions. So everyone got to tune into the sort of uh, things that I thought we actors should be looking out for, but also um, a sort of tone, mm -hmm. a, a guidance of, of, of meatiness or, or grittiness. Mm -hmm. um, and then we would do three runs. We would stagger it together, right. very quickly do it together again, and then the next day would be in front of the audience. Okay. So we sort of got it up on its feet and usually that's when because we don't block it of course there's no time to block mm. we're improvising our stagecraft when you're up on your feet for the first time and doing the lines for the first time and speaking them to someone for the first time all of the stagecraft goes out of the window right and you're not listening at all mm. well you are you're listening for your cue okay because you don't know when you're going to speak either because <laughs> you haven't read the play the second time we pass through it the stagecraft comes back and you're able to start um, listening again. Right. And then the third time in front of the audience, you're more fully present and, gotcha. and it kind of works. But all of these things, they wouldn't have had to do. Yeah. Like we're, 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 we're looking at trying to fill in the gaps of original practice. We know that they used cue scripts. We know they didn't have much rehearsal time. There's no 
government or arts council in the world that will fund uh, me and, and and a bunch of actors to to train together for 20 years. Huh. So how do we short circuit our way to yes. that kind yeah. of playfulness and that kind of uh, qualities of listening, I yeah. suppose? Ben, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I could talk to you for hours. But we've nearly got to wrap it up. Before we go, we've got the final five. That's five quick questions, five quick answers. Here we go. Number one, Ben Crystal, are you the lover, the villain, or the fool? The fool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> A loving fool. That was quick. Uh, what, what's your most underrated Shakespeare play? The most underrated Shakespeare play would probably be... Be, I'm buying some time here. Yes, you are. <laughs> I'm going to say Two Noble Kinsmen, maybe. Okay, King okay. John, uh, uh-huh. Titus Andronicus. There you go. That's the play. All right, good. That's the one play. Who's your favorite artist you'd love to work with you haven't worked with already? You, Jimmy. Oh, yeah, me too. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? Let's Absolutely. do something. Let's do something. What What's the dream Shakespeare role you'd love to play you haven't done yet? Oh, Iago. Mm. But do you know for why? Can I tell you for why? My father once told me I'll never play it because he said I look too nice. And I said, that's the point. <laughs> that is the point. Iago, the whole way through the story is called, oh, there's an honest fellow. There's a good yeah. fellow. Oh, 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 honest Iago, good Iago. Right. That's the whole point. Ben, if you weren't an artist, what would you be doing? I'd like to think I had the capacity to be an architect or uh-huh. cure cancer or something like that, but I know my brain doesn't work that way. I would like to feel I had the courage and strength to be a teacher, yeah. but I, especially in these times, we need to remodel education, I think, and we need to be paying teachers six-figure salaries. Yes. Um, not, that's not why I would do it, but um, I think, you know, teachers are struggling and and uh, I've got nothing but admiration for them, but I, I don't think I could do it. Um, I, I would uh, stand outside the theatre and hold someone's horse and <laughs> wait for them to allow me to come in and sweep up. <laughs> that's perfect, Ben. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on Speak the Speech. Thanks for having me. Now, just before we wrap up today's episode, a bit of podcast cross-promotion. I want to tell you about a show from America I think you'll enjoy. It's called Play On Podcasts, epic audio adventures that adapt and reimagine Shakespeare's timeless tales featuring original music and the voices of award-winning actors. Each episode explores plays from Macbeth to A Midsummer Night's Dream in a way that's easy to understand and is created specifically for the podcast form by some of America's most exciting playwrights, directors and composers. Hear Shakespeare like you've never heard it before. Subscribe to Play On Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, as always, for joining me on Speak the Speech, produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. And be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review our podcast through your listening platform.